Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week, Congressman David Price, who represents the 4th District of North Carolina in the United States Congress. And he's been a very loyal and frequent guest on this program for years. And uh, Congressman Price, welcome back to the program. Delighted to have you with us. Thank you. First time we've done it by Zoom, so there's always something new, right? That's right. Uh, Zooming is uh, one of the good things that came out of this pandemic. There's not a lot of good things that came out of it, but that's one of them. Right. And since we brought up COVID-19, uh, from a point of view of uh, the United States Congress and your particular point of view, uh, where do you think we stand now in COVID-19? What's, the, uh, what's your view of where we are? Well, I think the United States is uh, is on its way to uh, getting the pandemic under control. Um, the uh, things that could go wrong, I think, are pretty well known. We could stall out in terms of people getting vaccinated. Uh, and uh, there is a real danger worldwide of not uh, getting, uh, getting world populations vaccinated more quickly enough. And uh, it's a, a pandemic that knows no borders, really. So if... Uh, if there is a lag domestically or, or for that matter, a, uh, a lag worldwide where, uh, where new variants can develop, perhaps even variants that aren't uh, subject to the, to the, to the vaccine, then, uh, then, then we're in trouble all over again. So, uh, but having said that, I think we've had a uh, remarkable success in developing these vaccines and and in getting them distributed and getting getting out to hard to reach populations and all the rest of this country. Uh, this country was one of the worst countries in terms of the uh, initial dealing with the pandemic and in terms of the numbers of deaths and and uh, and the, the just the spread of the pandemic. Now, uh, it's uh, it's a good thing to be uh, leading the world in getting our population protected. Well, we've also, I think our manufacturing companies that are based in the United States have done a great job of, of uh, producing the vaccine. As a matter of fact, it would appear that we may even have enough vaccine now that we can start sharing with other countries. Oh, let's, let's hope so. I think we do have enough vaccine. It's in our interest to share with other countries. Uh, we, we, of course, need to have it uh, available on call here in this country. I think we've essentially reached that point. Uh, but... Um, I've been one of the champions in the Congress of the uh, COVAX effort, which is the effort to get vaccines, uh, you know, the vaccines that we have um, had the benefit of, get those distributed uh, worldwide. And, uh, and now the president has taken the step of, uh, of enabling uh, uh, manufacturers in other countries to take some shortcuts in, in producing more of the vaccine. I, I hope that that can work, whatever it takes. We've got to do this unprecedented thing of getting uh, worldwide immunity. Well, we've talked about this a couple of times before with some other guests, but basically if you go back to March of last year when we first realized what a serious situation we had and then things about uh, 13 months ago in April of last year, we uh, saw very dire circumstances We've actually come out of this thing a lot better, in my opinion, than I thought we would have. Uh, certainly, the economy was not nearly as, uh, I, I mean, a lot of people have just been, of course, devastated and wiped out. But many segments of the economy have done quite well, and the stock market has done well. So 
people's 401k and things of that nature did not take the hit that we maybe could have expected. The economy has done better than we expected. I don't think there's any question about that. And uh, we're, uh, of course, uh, still facing a, uh, a very spotty recovery. I think that needs to be said. The average figures don't tell the whole story as usual. And so there are still uh, unemployment in this country still is way, way above what it was before the uh, pandemic. And uh, certain elements of, of our business uh, community and, and the stock market are, are, uh, are nowhere near as well off as they were. But overall, overall, the economic picture is uh, better than predicted. And, and that bodes well, I think, for there being um, a recovery now that's more widely spread. And we just have to see it through. And that, that's where federal policy is, of course, going to come in with this infrastructure initiative and other things. The other thing, though, Don, I think there's no sugarcoating the health aspects of this. And in that respect, it was just an utter disaster in this country. The, uh, the hundreds of thousands of deaths, the, uh, the failure to uh, have a, a unified national approach that, uh, that got... Um, they got people protected when they needed to be the absence of, uh, of testing and protective equipment uh, where, when we needed it and, and, and so on. It was a very, very rough road through those months when uh, the health, uh, the health situation was just out of, out of control. So uh, it, uh, you know, the historians will explain why that was and what, uh, what, what went into that. But uh, you know, until until the recent disasters in, in India and Brazil, you know, you would have had to say the U.S. was the country hardest hit by this thing. The, uh, one of the things that has been fascinating to me is uh, uh, the number of ordinary flu cases and uh, the common cold. I think we should have learned, and maybe we have learned, that by washing hands and perhaps even wearing masks during the fall, that we can eliminate or at least uh, put a big dent in the number of people that have ordinary flu and uh, ordinary common colds, because according to the data I've seen, that uh, very we had very few deaths of ordinary flu last year. We had we had remarkably few cases, and and of course even fewer deaths. That's that's true, um, and it uh, no doubt has something to do with the protective measures that we've taken. They. Uh, they worked imperfectly for COVID, but they worked quite well for, for, for flu and, and lesser forms of, of infection. So uh, I'm sure we've learned a few things from that as well. Um, I think we'll probably still be taking flu shots. And, uh, and the health authorities say that we'll probably for a while now be taking annual COVID shots with, with some slight variation in, the, um, in the, what the vaccine can, contains to, uh, to keep up with any variants that might be produced. But I... Uh, I expect uh, we'll be lining up for uh, for flu and uh, COVID shots uh, each fall. Uh, I, I, I don't know that, but uh, it, it, anyway, what you say is is is, is quite true. We, whatever else is happening, the flu has not become anywhere near the health threat it was. Uh, there are a couple of other good things that we've learned is that uh, a lot of our business travel and uh, as uh, uh, been eliminated and probably replaced by Zoom. Now, that's going to change certain elements of our economy, such as business travel. That may continue to affect the hospitality business, although we have now talked to the hospitality people, and they say the number, the amount of leisure travel is picking up. 
So, well, don't you? Th- I mean, people are just itching to go. Uh, you know, my my wife is taking uh, a long delayed trip to uh, see our new grandchild in California very soon now, and uh, she just can't get on that plane fast enough. But uh, of course, that wasn't the way it looked three three months ago, and so uh, I think there is a lot of pent up demand. I, uh, you know, we I'm, I'm now. Uh, once again, chairman of the uh, Transportation and Housing Appropriations Subcommittee. So I talked to a lot of the uh, airline executives and people who run the airports. And uh, there's um, there, there's a uh, there, there's a, a pretty good recovery underway here. But uh, there again, it's still way, way below what it was uh, pre-pandemic. And what we don't know is where it's going to level off. That's really what you're saying. I'm, I'm, yeah. I, I, and of course, yeah. I mean, the problem with, uh, not the problem, but it's the problem and the opportunity, <clears throat> pardon me, in the airline business is having full planes because that's what keeps the price of the tickets down. That's right. That's right. Well, I um, I got on a plane to return to Washington for the first time in a year uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I'd almost forgotten how to go through security. But once I uh, reminded myself, it uh, went just fine. Uh, speaking of uh, that that committee, um, what is your outlook for the airline industry for the next twelve months? What what do you think they are going to be facing, and what can they do to improve their situation? I think they're looking at a uh, at a uh, steady recovery, but at some point it becomes uh, it becomes uh, less certain. What uh, what we're going to recover by way of the pre-pandemic uh, travel volumes? Uh, as you probably know, Raleigh Durham Airport has uh, put its new runway plans, has modified them, uh, as in a kind of wait and see mode. And I think that's that's taking place uh, all over the country. And uh, the the, uh, the federal government has uh, stepped up to the plate, I believe, for the airlines. That includes uh, uh, relief money that. Uh, went to maintain the airline payrolls and uh, and then a good deal of money that uh, went to maintain uh, terminal uh, facilities, including concessions. Uh, uh, there was a delay. It, it didn't come all at once or the way we had hoped exactly. But in the end, with this latest relief bill, I think the uh, I think the all elements of the aviation industry have been uh, have been dealt with uh, fairly and in ways that they would say have uh, have uh, kept them alive economically and contributed to uh, to a more rapid recovery. Well, it's, it's, it's that that's one of those industries that's going to uh, bear watching. And uh, of course, another thing that happened during the pandemic is how people learned to use uh, home delivery more and more. That was a trend that was happening anyway, but it looked like that uh, the pandemic may have accelerated that a good bit. And that changes a lot of things in the economy. Sure does. Well, and and in the, thinking about policy areas, uh, I think nothing more than uh, broadband and the uh, the use of the internet. I mean, the uh, the use of telemedicine, the uh, the online instruction, the uh, doing business uh, from home. I mean, all of these things highly, highly uh, internet uh, dependent. And by the same token, in areas where there is not good connectivity, then uh, there's a huge disadvantage. I mean, the disparity was there already. We knew that. We had talked a lot about broadband expansion before the pandemic. Now, I just think we have to, we just have to make a crusade of it. It has to be this century's rural electrification. And that's, uh, 
That's the way Joe Biden talks about it. It's the way I think we need to think about it. We just need to get this done. And uh, that will, uh, yes, we will, we will do a lot more business, a lot more medicine, a lot more uh, instruction probably online than we did before. Uh, but we simply cannot have these uh, inequalities and these disparities uh, unaddressed. Well, I think we've found out that uh, that's one of the issues that appear, appears to have fairly uh, consistent bipartisan uh, interest. I don't know whether it has bipartisan agreement on what to do about it, but uh, it certainly uh, both parties seem to be very concerned about ex- expanding broadband, and that's good. Uh, that's one of the questions I want to talk to you about, about the partisanship uh, and how that may be changing somewhat. Uh, we also want to get your assessment of the first uh, hundred or so days of the Biden administration, and we'll do that. Uh, and we're also going to talk about uh, some of the other committees and some of the other work that you do in your role as uh, uh, congressman for North Carolina and representing our fourth district. We also want to talk about the census and how that's going to affect North Carolina politics and maybe even your district, because uh, it means we're going to have to realign again. We'll do all of that when we return with the next segment of Carolina Newsmakers. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. When you went car shopping, you meant business. You ace vehicle history searches and test drives. You out salesmen to the salesman. Now you've got your wheels. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. With 401k tips and smart saving strategies, you'll have the info you need to get more for your future. Go to aceyourretirement.org because when it comes to speeding past financial challenges, you're an ace. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is Congressman David Price, who represents North Carolina's 4th District, which is a rapidly growing research and educated focused district that includes parts of Orange, Durham, and Wake Counties. Now, having said that, we just completed a census, and uh, North Carolina is gaining a 4th uh, 14th congressional seat, and that's going to require some redistricting. And uh, many of the, uh, uh, well, in fact, the two leading count, uh, largest counties in North Carolina, Wake and Durham, I mean, Wake and Mecklenburg, are probably going to have uh, more than one congressman representing them because their populations are so large. Wake County this week was announced, bypassed Mecklenburg County as North Carolina's largest county. Congressman, how do you see the redistricting going and how do you think it's going to affect your district? 
it's going to make big changes. The, um, the districts here in the Triangle, which would be the second represented by, by Deborah Ross in, in Congress, a first-termer this time, and the reconfigured fourth district, I mean really reconfigured fourth district, which I represent, which goes over uh, all our part of seven counties, both of those districts are about 150,000 people over what they uh, need need to be, and given the new uh, consent, the new census, you know, the the, the the population growth has been such that uh, to get our districts back to something like 750,000 people, you're going to have to uh, to cut the territory in both, and uh, and that's true, as you said, of uh, districts in the Triad and uh, and Charlotte area. And then you add the overall population growth, which adds a 14th district, uh, divides the pie in 14 ways rather than 13. So it's uh, it's, it's going to be big, big change. And uh, I hope it'll be done in a fair and equitable way. That uh, may sound like a naive hope because uh, we've been ground zero for uh, gerrymandering. Uh, the district I represent is now in the third form that it's taken in the last 10 years. Uh, it... Uh, it was redistricted under court order in, uh, in in 2015. Then it was redistricted in under another court order in 2019, uh, and uh, it's just it's just unacceptable. And people people don't know what their district is, who their representative is, and uh, and there's a real skew to it. I mean, up until this last redistricting, we had ten Republicans and three Democrats in an evenly divided state. I mean, there's something very much wrong with that picture. Now it's eight Democrats, I mean, eight Republicans and five Democrats, but it's still uh, still pretty badly gerrymandered. So the um, the General Assembly is, again, under Republican control. We're going to see what kind of job they do. But I hope they'll take these court decisions into account and that we'll have a fair set of districts to start with this time. Uh, my own preference would be nonpartisan districting. And I am uh, sponsoring this H.R. 1 legislation in, in the House, which, among other things, would require states to do this on a nonpartisan basis. But uh, even if that were to pass, be a tall order to get that in order for this next round. Well, this may be an unfair question, uh, but uh, have you already started considering your future? Or are you planning at this point in time to seek another term? I uh I'm not prepared to announce it at this point. I am, uh, of course, thinking about thinking about the future. Well, you know, one of the great things about uh, serving in Congress is uh, the uh, what you pick up through the years and the knowledge and wisdom. There's a lot of conversation from time to time about term limits, but there's another side to that, and that is experience and wisdom. So, where do you come down on that? Uh, well, I think the uh, I think the Question of term limits is uh, uh, the, the way I would uh, suggest people think about that is whether they would apply a similar concept to any other institution that we uh, that we know about. You know, the uh, uh, I, I think most institutions, probably all of them, require some mix of uh, seasoned, experienced individuals and others who bring in fresh ideas and new blood. Uh, in fact, the Congress has very considerable turnover. Uh, we, uh, I, I think, well over two thirds of our uh, members have been there less, fewer than ten years, and so uh, there's a lot of turnover, and there are wave elections that uh, accelerate the turnover. And uh, yet, if your people are willing to reelect you, you can you can run. There's no limit on the number of times you, you can run, and so uh, you might expect me to uh, 
to be skeptical about the idea of term limits, but I don't think it just applies to the Congress. I think uh, if you uh, arbitrarily kicked every member of Congress out after six years or eight years, then there's some pretty predictable uh, results of that. You would um, you you would devolve power to the staff who 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 do have staying power. You would devolve power to the lobbyists who do have staying power. You would devolve power to the executive branch, which uh, is always a competitor for power and would take uh, rapidly take advantage of uh, of a less experienced legislative branch. Uh, that's one reason a lot of presidents in both parties have favored term limits. Uh, that doesn't mean it's a good idea. It just means there are institutional stakes in uh, in having a mix of uh, of seasoned members and 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 newer, fresher members in the in, in the Congress. So I've I've never thought an arbitrary limit on the number of terms made much sense. There's some discussion about statehood for the District of Columbia. Historically, uh, the District of Columbia uh, is not rep- the citizens of the District of Columbia theoretically are are citizens somewhere else, I guess, for voting rights. Uh, what's your view of, on that uh, prospect? Oh, I think I think the District of Columbia should have uh, should have statehood, uh, partly because there's not any uh, any very good alternative or, or any alternative at all, really, that would protect full voting rights. We don't. You're either a state or you're not. And uh, the District of Columbia's population is uh, already well above uh, a number of uh, states that have uh, full representation. Uh, District of Columbia is. Um, the only federal district that I know of where, uh, where of a major country where, where citizens don't have full uh, voting rights. Um, uh, I know poli- people tend to view these things in terms of, well, would those be Democratic or those be Republican uh, uh, representatives or senators? Uh, they feel the same way about Puerto Rico. But uh, in, in the end, I think uh, representative democracy requires uh, that all citizens be represented in their in their legislature, fully represented, and and uh, so it's a pretty simple, straightforward principle. And uh, and DC has uh, has more than enough uh, people. If the question is what's the size of the district, well, you know, it has more than enough people to justify this. Is an alternative to that uh, allowing Virginia and, and the other adjacent states to? Uh, uh, spread their territory into the District of Columbia and cover it that way? Well, that's what some people have suggested. Of course, Virginia's portion of the district, Virginia reclaimed uh, a century ago. Uh, The District of Columbia used to extend into what is now Arlington and Alexandria, or at least that was the original concept. Uh, So so the present district is carved out of of Maryland, so to speak. Yes, that would be an alternative, uh, not a very good one in my opinion, because there's still going to be a federal district. And, and I think uh, having it totally absorbed by the state of Maryland or any single state would, uh, would create uh, problems of its own. Give us a little history lesson. Why was it set up that the District of Columbia would not be a state? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I know uh, the, the full story. The, I think it was uh, it was uh, conceived of a as as a uh, conceived of as a as a kind of federal enclave without a, a large population and and the population that there was was uh, was quite transient. Um, if you, it just uh, and and uh, 
that of course by the by the mid nineteenth century had had changed. But I, I think initially it was thought of as a as a as a federal enclave apart from the states or or ceded by the states, carved out as I said of Virginia and and Maryland. So the notion that this would be a state of its own um, probably dawned. That idea dawned slowly as the district uh, developed more of a population and a life of its own. Well, it, uh, I had, uh, uh, we just always expected the District of Columbia to be separate. And I, I, I suddenly realized I had no idea why. Of course, there's a lot of things I don't know. I can tell you that. <laughs> well, the district the district was given uh, electoral votes, as you, as you know, some, uh, some time ago. That took an amendment uh, to... Uh, to give them a presidential vote, uh, they do have a non-voting delegate in uh, in Washington, uh, but uh, but no representation whatsoever in the Senate. Of course, if they are a state now, they would also have a governor, and that would be a new concept. I guess at the present time, I guess the mayor of Washington sort of serves as the what is the same thing as a governor of other states. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's kind of a hybrid position. So uh, that's going to be interesting. Do you think there will be any action on that this year, or is that something that will be uh, debated for some time? Well, we we passed it in the House. It was pretty much a party line vote, and uh, with the Senate as closely divided as it is, it's a it's a heavy lift in the in the Senate. I I guess the betting would be that it would uh, would would uh, be be difficult to pass under present circumstances. But on the other hand, uh, it really is on the agenda now. Um, I, I think in a way that it hasn't been, and the, and the questions about the fairness of not doing this have uh, have been pretty sharply posed. So uh, I I wouldn't be surprised if in a few years we're we're really dealing with uh, this as a likely possibility. Well, I know you're in the House, and and the House has a little bit of a difference of a majority in the vote, but in the Senate, uh, while the uh, with the vice president's vote, the uh, Democrats have control. That does change the chairmanships, but uh, it only takes one senator to change a position, and all of a sudden there is no control by the. Uh, oh, that's majority tell us about it. <laughs> tell us about it. That's exactly right. Uh, although, I wouldn't underestimate the importance of uh, of having those chairmanships. Um, oh, that's you, that's huge. Yeah. You just you just think about it. Think think about the confirmation of. Uh, Joe Biden's cabinet choices, for example, how uh, how different that would have looked under the uh, control of the opposing party. Well, as uh, as those who are serving in office and those who have had a lot of contact with Washington, so much of the work of government is done on the committee level, uh, both in the House and the Senate. Sure is. It's uh, it, it, not as much as it used to be. Uh, I I'd say the uh, and the centralization of both the House and the Senate, particularly the House, has, well, the Senate, too, when you think about the kind of control Mitch McConnell has had. But uh, both both chambers have become much more centralized, much more polarized. And that's not, um, to, to my view, that's not an entirely healthy development. I understand when, when there's a lot of conflict and there's a lot of crisis and there are a lot of emergencies, including pandemics and and self-created budget uh, showdowns, all of those things percolate power to the top. You know, uh, we in the appropriations uh, committees often look at each other and say, well, I guess this just went above our pay grade. 
uh, you know, whenever there's some kind of uh, threatened shutdown and uh, a settlement has to be negotiated. So, so the centralization is, uh, is, is pretty far advanced and the pandemic, uh, believe me, the pandemic has made it much, much more advanced. Uh, it's just so hard to deal in the usual way under these circumstances. But I think one of the abiding strengths of, uh, of our Congress is it's, uh, is the committee system and the kind of specialization and focus that committee service uh, requires. So uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm an advocate of uh, keeping that centralization in check and keeping a major role for the committees. Our guest is Congressman David Price. And in the next segment, uh, I'm going to ask the congressman to give us his assessment of the first days of the Biden administration and what uh, has been proposed and what is likely to happen the rest of the, uh, the year. And we'll do that when we return with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers. You stay tuned. To some people, the sound of a baby babbling doesn't mean much. But that's not necessarily true. By six months, they're combining vowels and consonants. By nine months, they're trying out different kinds of sounds. And by 12 months, their babbling is beginning to take on some meaning. Especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Early screening and intervention can make a lifetime of difference and unlock a world of possibilities. Take the first step at AutismSpeaks.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers uh, with Congressman David Price. Before he began his service in Congress, uh, he was a professor of political science and public policy at Duke University. Of course, he's a uh, graduate of UNC Chapel Hill and uh, went on to get his Bachelor of Divinity and PhD in political science at Yale University. So you've been around in the academic circle, so to speak. At, uh, uh, and, and, and one day I want to do a whole segment uh, just based on your experience with education and, and your Well, I, I, it reminds me when I was, uh, you know, at, in graduate school about finally to finish all that, uh, I, you know, would go home and uh, people would, uh, I'd be with my parents and people would say to me, you know, how, how it is at home. But people say, well, you, you've been at school a long time. You're going to, uh, you're going to make a lot of money. And I, <laughs> sometimes I would say, I'd always think, uh, listen, if I was going to make money, I would have stopped a couple of degrees ago. <laughs> there comes a point, there comes a point where, uh, that's not, that's not what it's about. <clears throat> Well, I, I, as I said in the last segment, I want to ask you to give your assessment of where the Biden administration is and how what they've done, what they've already accomplished in the first uh, hundred or so days, hundred plus days now 
of their term and what is uh, being proposed and what is likely to come to fruition the rest of the year. So just uh, let's start with the assessment of what's what's been done and uh, how much progress do you think they have made? I think it's been a good, strong start. And uh, as we said in the prior segment, having uh, Democratic leadership, although it's very, very narrow, having that kind of leadership to get the cabinet approved and to get um, get the administration started, so to speak, has been has been a, uh, a positive thing. And then the uh, of course, we we, we did uh, we did the recovery. I'm sorry, the relief bill, almost two trillion dollars in, in pandemic uh, relief. Uh, that was a mixed picture. Uh, there are some of the earlier pandemic relief had been done on a bipartisan basis. Uh, and that was um, that was not possible. It turned out in, in this bill, it uh, was passed on party line votes in both the House and the Senate, which is a longer story. But still, it did pass and uh, it passed with uh, with a very, very impressive unity, I would say, uh, on the Democratic side and great public support. That's one reason it passed was because the public support was just overwhelming. And so, you know, in um, when you compare that to the Recovery Act back under uh, Barack Obama when we were coming out of the Great Recession, you know, that was less than a trillion dollars. This is um, this is about twice what that recovery bill was. And um, it, um, it it would, would count, I think, as a major achievement, uh, even if nothing else happened. But uh, of course, we hope other things are going to happen, and uh, we're we're now dealing with uh, a couple of successive uh, proposals by the Biden administration, which uh, I think do uh, do mark him as a as a remarkably ambitious president. Kind of unlikely that Joe Biden gets cast in the Roosevelt role, but there's been a lot of commentary about the Times uh, demanding this. I uh, I agree with that. The major package we're considering right now focuses on infrastructure. It's called the jobs plan. I think it's um, it's probably uh, accurate to see it as partly an economic recovery measure, trying to even out and accelerate the recovery from the pandemic, and also then making a long overdue investment in our infrastructure, which I think we'd be dealing with even without the pandemic. We've talked about it so long, we've not done nearly enough about it. So I think this infrastructure investment, and I am talking not just roads and bridges, talking transit, aviation, Broadband, housing, um, water and sewer infrastructure, and 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 all of that, all of that is long overdue for investment. And then finally, the third piece is um, uh, aimed more at American families. It, it deals with uh, with our childcare needs. It, it deals with uh, the, the need for uh, for for family and medical leave. It, it deals with uh, uh, making uh, the the child tax credit permanent. Uh, Doing something about persistent child poverty and uh, and and pre-K universal pre-K education, uh, broadening our concept of public education so that it, it includes grades thirteen and fourteen. Uh, that measure is uh, is also, I think, best seen as a as an investment measure. Uh, and uh, each of these is a, a challenge, but uh, the fact that we're considering something this ambitious at all. And that um, there is uh, the serious work underway to, to make this happen is just a sign of the times we're in, I think. Um, you know, we talked earlier about um, people's view of government and people's uh, partisanship. I do think um, 
one effect of the pandemic. Well, the pandemic's had a couple of effects. Partly it has polarized us, there's no question. If people are making a political statement out of wearing or not wearing a mask, then you know you can't say that the pandemic has reduced the polarization. It, it's 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 it 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 has our polarized politics uh, has determined more than it should have of our response. On the other hand, the long-term effect of this, what we've just been through, may be to convince people that uh, there is a need for a, a, a well-designed uh, government uh, set of programs uh, in government that uh, that help equalize uh, opportunity in this society and, and help uh, help us uh, invest in what we need to invest in. In other words, there's a less reflexively negative view of government. The most of the economists, uh, either both those who are known as sort of liberal economists and conservative uh, economists, were all in favor of the additional efforts to uh, stabilize the economy. At the same time, they also recognized that it was increasing the national debt and it's going to have to be paid off sometime. How concerned are you about the national debt and where do you think that's going? Well, I think uh, there, um, there, there is a concern here and it has to do partly with how much debt we could carry and the kind of interest burden that places on the future. There's also a concern about inflation, as Larry Summers and some other economists have uh, articulated. The uh, I, I've been in discussions this week. I'm also serving on the budget committee once again, and we've been we've been talking about that question of how much uh, how much deficit and debt we can safely carry. I think a couple of things are, are true. One is that um, we we've we have um, we've carried more deficit and debt than we thought we previously economists had led us to believe would be safe, and uh, we've done it without. Uh, without a, a lot of inflation or without increases in interest rates. And so uh, the, uh, the, some of the economic um, modeling is, is being shifted uh, as we speak. On the other hand, um, there is a limit and uh, we're going to, uh, we need to anticipate what that limit might be. And for that reason, for that reason, President Biden has said, yes, he would borrow money for the relief bill, for pandemic relief. That's in the area of emergency relief. All of, What we got to do there is just get, the, get us through to the other side of this pandemic. However, when it comes to these longer term investments, he does want to, uh, he does want to pay for them in whole or in part. Uh, it would not be safe just to borrow that money. And uh, therefore, he has proposed uh, tax increases to go along uh, with, the, with the spending increases mostly having to do with uh, kind of splitting the difference on the, uh, on the Trump tax cuts. The, uh, I was going to ask you about the taxation because obviously everybody's concerned about taxation. And uh, uh, obviously if we're going to do more, it's got to be paid for some way or another. Where do you see most of the tax changes occurring? I believe, uh, I believe something like what Biden has proposed makes a lot of sense. And, and I do think it has political appeal as, as well. Um, I'm not, I'm not saying it'll be easy to do, but, um, you know, no, no corporation that I know of either expected or asked for a 21% uh, corporate rate, but that's what they got from the Trump administration. Nonetheless. I mean, I think most people expected, uh, the rate to end up in the mid twenties. And that's really what uh, Biden is saying it should come to. It would still be a, a substantial tax reduction from where, where we started out. Uh, 
And then there's a, a comparable proposal, comparable proposal for the wealthiest uh, individuals. And then importantly, there's a bunch of looks looks pretty uh, pretty complicated, but they're important proposals to uh, disincentivize offshoring. And to uh, this is partly a matter of collecting revenue, but it's also a matter of keeping uh, jobs and production capacity at home. And, and that's also part of the package. I, I think it's pretty well designed, honestly. What about uh, uh, capital gain taxes? Is you see a change there? That's part of the uh, that's part of this latest uh, uh, package, which uh, involves individual taxation. Uh, the idea being that um, that capital gains from the sale of um, assets that that should not be taxed. Why should it be taxed at a lower rate than uh, the, the average guy's wages? Uh, it, it is a it's a good question, I think, uh, both politically and uh, and economically. The uh, uh, that but that's the, that's the idea that there should not be a, a discrimination in favor of um, of of capital gains. That that the the rate should be uh, and I and I think the proposal. I have to check this, but I think the the uh, the normal taxation of capital gains wouldn't kick in except up the uh, at the upper levels. The uh, uh, and of course, the state taxes, of course, are always a concern to everyone. Right. Because uh, you see any changes coming there? Uh, well, state taxes, um, you, you know, they were they were made a big political issue uh, about ten years ago. Everybody remembers the term "death tax," uh, I guess, and uh, <laughs> the way that was uh, the way that was uh, portrayed politically. Uh, uh, there was never ever. <laughs> Uh, for a long time, there hasn't been a, a, tr- a truly uh, confiscatory estate tax in this country, although you wouldn't know it to hear the talk shows. So as far as I'm concerned, we can make an adjustment there. But that has not been uh, front and center with Biden. Uh, and and I, uh, unless I missed it, I don't think he's proposing that. Well, you know, as we've talked about, the House is uh, the Democrats have some margin there. The problem is always going to be in the Senate where just one vote changes everything. One vote changes everything, and it's close in the House too, believe me. Uh, and uh, and with the combination of retirements and population shifts and and gerrymandering, you know, the uh, there's a lot riding on how all this goes in terms of the House majority as well. Do you see more interest in working across the aisle than you did, uh, say, two years ago? Oh, I wish I could say yes. I mean, there are there are. Um, isolated instances um, and, and actually some that are not so isolated. I would, I would say our work on the appropriations committee, as we've often talked about on this show before, it's one of the more bipartisan places. If you give us a decent overall number to work with uh, my uh, Republican counterpart and I can work out a pretty, pretty good transportation and housing bill for you. And in, uh, in a, in a very short period of time, and uh, certainly the international work that I lead the, uh, Parliament to Parliament work with developing countries. That's uh, that's totally nonpartisan. And on an individual level, I've uh, I've teamed up with uh, uh, my colleague Greg Murphy in Eastern North Carolina to uh, to to co-sponsor. We're, we're jointly sponsoring a bill to deal with a particular vexing student debt problem. Kids that caught up get caught up in special circumstances. You know, one one project at a time, you, you can you can do a good bit on a bipartisan basis. But on the whole, 
on the whole, it has proved to be very, very difficult to get uh, bipartisan buy-in to, uh, to, to the, uh, to, to, to even to the relief bill, much less these larger recovery measures. There are good faith efforts underway right this minute to get a bipartisan uh, agreement going on infrastructure, at least on uh, physical transportation infrastructure. So I, I wish that effort well. I'm willing to be part of it. But uh, I think overall, still a pretty polarized situation. Well, you know, dialogue is uh, dialogue is good. And as long as there's some dialogue, there's some hope for uh, continued cooperation between the parties. At least that's my view. And I hope that uh, uh, turns out. I know that's your view as well. Uh, that it always works out better when everybody can get together and work out things together. We've got one more segment on Carolina Newsmakers, and we'll be back right after these messages. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95... I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me. Your handy chains dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com, brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. Hope you enjoyed your meal. And I just want to say, he's lucky to have a brother like you. Lucky? Caring for my brother is far from easy. But he's a part of me, like my arms and legs, so I'll be his. No time for tired. Nothing can disable this love. He needs me. But I'm the lucky one, even though I need help now and then. If you're caring for a loved one, visit aarp.org caregiving for care guides and community. Support for your strength. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back with our final segment of Carolina Newsmakers with Congressman David Price, who represents the 4th District of North Carolina in the, the current session of Congress. Uh, and uh, he has been a of course, a frequent guest in our program, and we've already talked about a number of issues and gotten his assessment on uh, the early uh, success of the Biden administration. And uh, we've talked a little bit about the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan, the two big uh, programs that uh, President Biden is uh, proposing. Um, we've talked a great deal about the uh, COVID-19, uh, COVID-19 crisis and how we sort of see an end to that as far as its major effects on us. So I'm going to turn now, Congressman Price, to what you see for the next 30 to 60 days. What's at the top of your agenda and things that you hope to see Congress uh, accomplish? There's a, uh, there's a very ambitious agenda. And the, you say the next 30 days, I would, I would extend that a bit and say uh, the next uh, 60, 90 days, maybe, you know, before the, uh, before the August, uh, the kind of traditional uh, period of, uh, of downtime in, in, in August, we got a lot that we need to get done. I, uh, I'm, I'm uh, as, as chairman of the Transportation and Housing Appropriations Subcommittee, I'm, I'm naturally focused on uh, one very important set of things that needs to happen, namely the uh, 
passage of the uh, 12 appropriations bills to fund the government in uh, fiscal uh, 2022. And I guarantee you that is going to happen one way or another in, in this period of time. I don't know if it gets totally completed. We, uh, as usual, probably will have to wait on our Senate counterparts to, uh, to, to catch up. Uh, but uh, we are well underway. I have had hearings in my subcommittee already with uh, Secretary Pete Buttigieg of Transportation, Secretary Marsha Fudge in Housing. We uh, are uh, uh, dealing uh, for the first time in a number of years with uh, what we used to call earmarks, that is the ability of members to uh, designate uh, precisely in their districts where there's some funds are going to be spent. We do this without raising the, the deficit, but we do it by way of uh, restoring the power of the purse and the, and the uh, kind of localism of, um, of our focus in, in certain kinds of uh, areas. That's a lot of work. Uh, the whole appropriations process is, um, is uh, very, uh, very intensive, but that, uh, those bills have to pass or else the whole thing shuts down. So uh, we have that going for us. Everybody knows that. And, and so we, we anticipate uh, a cooperative process, probably less partisan. Uh, going back to our previous discussion, uh, this appropriations process may well be less partisan than, uh, than the other, other aspects of the president's program that we've been, uh, been talking about. So there's that. And then uh, secondly, I think the uh, focus will be on the, uh, the jobs bill and the families bill, especially the jobs bill, that was next in line, the infrastructure bill. How how big can we go? How broadly do we conceive of infrastructure? How much partisan cooperation can we get? All of those questions you're going to know the answer to within a few weeks. Uh, I know you have a great deal of interest in uh, foreign affairs, and you've been active in that arena as well. Uh, we, uh, our whole foreign relations program changed a great deal under the past administration and the Trump administration. Are we back to a more traditional form and how are we, uh, standing now with our neighbors abroad? Well, the president likes to say America is back and, uh, I'm not sure it's quite that simple, but that's certainly what he aspires to. And it's what he's working on. And I, and I think it's, highly important that he succeed. Uh, we have immediately set out to uh, repair relationships with uh, NATO and with our European allies. We have uh, uh, have uh, rejoined the, uh, the Paris uh, Climate Accords, the international agreement on, uh, on trying to control uh, greenhouse gases. We are working very, very hard to restore that critical Iran nuclear agreement to keep Iran from being becoming a nuclear power. That was one of the most destructive things Donald Trump did was simply to blow up uh, that agreement. Uh, in area after area, uh, what you see is um, energetic diplomatic outreach by, by this administration. I think uh, uh, the president's made very strong appointments in the foreign policy area. He's also sent some negative signals. Uh, there was a story in the national press this week about how uh, a certain number of autocrats uh, internationally, like uh, the ones uh, Trump uh, showed a preference for, they have yet to get that phone call, let alone a visit from uh, from Joe Biden. And there's a there's a message in that as as well. But um, I, I do think, as a champion of human rights, as a promoter of uh, of uh, of open and transparent and uh, democratic uh, societies, you know, the U.S. is back. There'll there'll have to be some 
testing, I suppose. I mean, countries are going to wonder, can we go back to the Trumpian ways? And uh, of course, there's no absolute guarantee of that. But uh, Joe Biden and his team are going to do their very best to uh, to, to restore that uh, uh, role of world leadership that this country uh, enjoyed for, for so many decades. You know, it's interesting how things come to the front burner and then they slip back to the back burner and then they're just off the stove altogether. A couple of years ago, or maybe a little bit longer than that, we were just so uh, concerned about North Korea and President uh, Trump went over and visited and so forth. Now you hear very little about it. Where do we stand with North Korea? Uh, still a very dangerous uh, situation, but not one where uh, you're going to have any time uh, soon in, or where you're ever going to have, uh, I think, the assumption that this naive assumption that uh, personal uh, bromance and substitute for foreign policy. That was one of the strangest episodes of foreign policy I've ever seen. This notion that uh, these two leaders write uh, what Trump called love letters to each other and that that was somehow going to, uh, to, to serve our interests. No, North Korea actually uh, increased its uh, capacity and uh, nuclear capacity and conventional capacity during this period of time. Uh, so it's a, it's a situation right now of, um, uh, of containing that threat, uh, deterring that threat. And um, I, I hope eventually enlisting China. I mean, this is one area where there is uh, down the road somewhere a mutual interest with China. Despite our, our negative ledger with China, there's some areas where we need to cooperate. And uh, dealing with this rogue power, North Korea, is, is one of them. But I, uh, I, think, I think Biden will... We'll work on that eventually, but he's not going to be uh, trying to, to cultivate this kind of personal diplomacy with uh, where, where it's so clearly futile. I, I read an interesting article uh, about three months ago where the, the writer was projecting that uh, while uh, North Korea may be seemingly uh, concerned with the United States, that their ultimate enemy and their biggest confrontation will be with China, not with us. Well, that's whatever you, I think that's a very insightful argument. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, the, uh, the Chinese don't have, um, the, the Chinese interest is, is not in having North Korea as a rogue power, uh, creating great peril all over the world. Um, uh, unfortunately, the present Chinese regime has not dealt with that as forthrightly as, as it might. Uh, I actually think under Biden and a, and a more conventional kind of American diplomacy, it might uh, be more likely that uh, that China uh, acts on that uh, perception that you just uh, stated. Immigration has also been back in the news, and uh, the uh, what, what what do you see there, and what is your current assessment? There's no more troubled area of national policy than immigration, I think, and and that is largely the result of the policies of the last four years. Well, it's a very difficult area of policy in general. You grant that, and the and the situation in Central America with uh, all the push factors there—the gang violence, the uh, deprivation, economic uh, distress—it's uh, just uh, it's just irresistible. And uh, so, uh, and you know, we had begun to deal with that. There, there had been actually Biden took on this role as vice president under Obama. We had begun to address the root causes of migration in Central America, and then Trump. Uh, Trump rolled it back completely and, uh, and then adopted this, uh, this immigration policy that was problematic in, in so many ways, from separating families at the border to totally 
cutting off the flow of refugees to uh, a Muslim ban and, and on and on and on. So um, there's no area where the repair work is, uh, is greater than, than in immigration. Uh, I think Joe Biden uh, made a misstep in, uh, in not moving immediately on the refugee issue or, or saying he was going to and then backing off. He very quickly corrected that. Uh, we've, we've got to uh, once again have a, a manageable flow of refugees and do our part with that. And there are a lot of people here in the Triangle who uh, a lot of, of good organizations ready to, uh, to help facilitate uh, the resettlement of a certain number of people from the uh, world's most troubled places. Um, uh, midnight raids and deportations, uh, one would assume that's now a thing of the past. Um, but there's still vexing issues of border security and just how, how much of, a, of an immigrant population we can accommodate. Uh, so so we, we need comprehensive immigration reform. The president uh, has said that. He, entered, he put a bill forward that his first day in office. In the meantime, the dreamers, the young people who came here as children, the, uh, the question of farm labor, working out uh, a, a reasonable system where farm workers can come and go, those uh, those things we may we may deal with those things separately or comprehensively, but one way or another we have to deal with. Well, you know we we're running out of time, but uh, we haven't even talked about uh, educational concerns. We haven't talked about healthcare concerns, and of course the American public always concerned about those. And uh, there's so many issues that, that I'd like to bring up. Um, so, uh, I, but I, I find myself with an awkward amount of time, not enough time to open another topic. Uh, uh, so uh, what are you going to be focusing on in the next week? Let's get down to one week. <laughs> oh, in the next week. All right. Well, that's, I have a, I have a hearing. I've really put a lot of time in on because I think it's really important. We're having a, we're having a hearing next week on my subcommittee. We're not going to wait for the appropriations cycle to be over. We're going to immediately focus on uh, aircraft and airliner safety and the certification process, the, 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 re, the reflying of these MAX aircrafts that have been subject to these awful disasters, uh, the latest Pratt & Whitney engine mishaps. Uh, aircraft safety is a matter of huge concern, and uh, our subcommittee needs to understand what the FAA, the Federal Aviation Agency, has done, can do, must do. So that's my immediate focus is getting uh, up to speed on, on, on that issue. But uh, that's just the next week. <laughs> Thank you so much for being so candid with us and giving us the interesting insights and in all the things that are happening in Washington. Congressman David Price, who represents North Carolina's 4th District, frequent guest in our program, and we look forward to having you back on again sometime in the midsummer and bring us an update. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong. He will have another interesting guest for us next week. If you happen to be listening to one of the stations that carries the half-hour version of this program, I remind you that you can go to carolinanewsmakers.com and pick up not only the entire broadcast, if you choose, or the segments that you missed. That's carolinanewsmakers.com. So on behalf of Jason, our producer, and our entire staff here at WPTF, we hope that you and yours have a very good week. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong 
Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.